Who are the four horsemen of the apocalypse in Revelation 6? What are the seven seals? Welcome to the Faith in a Busy World podcast with me, Steve Griffiths. This chapter talks about divine judgments that God will bring before the salvation of the world at the second coming of Jesus. Revelation 6 is all about God's judgment on a broken and sinful and disobedient world. We might find this passage a bit frightening, but we have to remember that there is a day of salvation drawing near, the second coming, when Christ will return and draw all of creation back to himself. But before we unpack that idea a bit further, let's take a look at the seven seals themselves and see what they represent. And we start with the four horsemen of the apocalypse in verses 4 to 8. Who are these four horsemen of the apocalypse in Revelation 6? Well, there's lots of different opinions about that and interpretations have changed over the years, so I can only tell you how I see it. Let's get straight into it. So a large part of the book of Revelation is describing the state of the world between the first coming of Jesus at his nativity in Bethlehem and the second coming of Jesus when he returns in glory. And these four horsemen represent four common experiences that will hallmark the world between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. Jesus spoke about them and they're mentioned in other parts of the Bible as well. So what do these four horsemen represent? Horseman number one, Revelation 6 verse 2 says this, I looked and there before me was a white horse, its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Some people say this is Jesus because he wears a crown and he comes to conquer, but in the context of this chapter that's pretty unlikely. Instead I think this horseman represents war between nations. In Mark 13 verse 8 when Jesus talks about the end times he says that nation will rise against nation and the rider of the white horse represents that. He's holding a bow in his hand which was a weapon of war and he conquers which implies a foreign power invading a country and defeating it. It's such a sad reality that the history of humanity from the first coming of Jesus through to the second coming of Jesus is hallmarked by war after war after war and we pray for all victims of war across the world today. Horseman number two, verse four says this, Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. Now that sounds like the first horseman bringing war, but it's not. The first horseman carried a bow, which was a weapon of war. But this one carries a large sword. And the Greek word used here is makaira, which was a particular type of sword used by Roman authorities to execute rebels. So this horseman represents internal civil wars in which people attack and slay one another. In Mark 13 verse 12, Jesus says, Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death and again it's good for us to pray for those parts of the world where they are struggling with civil war and those countries where deep political division is negatively impacting relationships and local communities so these first two horsemen represent the violence in the world between the first coming of jesus and the second coming of jesus Horseman number three. In Mark 13 verse 8, Jesus says this, There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. And the third horseman of the apocalypse represents those famines. And here's why. First, he's carrying scales in his hands, which suggests that the food will be carefully weighed and rationed out. And secondly, as the horseman rides out, a voice from heaven said this, Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, 
two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages. And do not damage the oil and the wine. Two pounds of wheat was deemed necessary for a working man to eat each day. So here is a day's wages for a day's food. And all that would be left for the man's family was the inferior barley, which was the poor man's food. And even six pounds for a day's wages, even if he had the money, would be a starvation diet for them all. And then we get the curious phrase, do not damage the oil and wine. These are the luxury items. And we know, don't we, that even in times of famine, there are those in authority and the rich who manage to continue to enjoy the luxuries of life. While the ordinary people suffer and struggle and starve, the rich still live in their mansions and palaces and enjoy the finest food and drink. The wheat is unaffordable, the barley is unaffordable, but the oil and the wine remains unaffected. And finally, horseman number four, verse eight says this, I looked and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine and plague and by the wild beasts of the earth. I think the identity of this horseman is the most difficult to identify. And the description given here is a little bit more detailed than the other horsemen. Firstly, the horse is described as being pale. And that word is only used four times in the New Testament. And on the other three occasions, it's pale green or a sickly green. So here I think it's making us think about people who are sick and ill and at the point of death. And the name of the rider is Death. But that's a bit confusing because the other three riders have all brought death as well, haven't they? But the Greek word used here for death can also mean plague or pestilence. When he speaks about the end times in Luke 21 verse 11, Jesus says this, There will be great earthquakes, famines and pestilences in various places. So this horseman represents those who will die from plagues and pestilence and disease. And then behind this fourth horse, walks Hades. Hades is the place of the dead and this verse gives us a symbolic number, 25% of people who will die through wars and civil wars and famines and pestilence. Don't forget it's not a single catastrophic event that's being described here. It's a general comment that a large proportion of human deaths between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus will be sadly unnecessary. But in Revelation 6, there are two more seals to open, and these have a different feel to them completely. Verse 9 and 10. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they've maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Well, that takes us right back to the beginning of Scripture, the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. And in verse 10, God says to Cain, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And here, right at the other end of the Bible, the saints are crying out to God again, asking when their spilt blood will be avenged. God will judge the world for the way it's slain the martyrs. But why does this verse say that the souls of the martyrs are under the altar? Well, there's two ideas coming together here. The first is in Leviticus chapter 4 verse 7, which says this, The priest shall then put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense, that is, before the Lord in the tent of meeting. The rest of the bull's blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar. 
The souls of the martyrs are under the altar in the same way that the blood of sacrificial animals is under the altar. But there's also a Jewish text by Rabbi Akiba from that time that says that being buried under the altar in the temple is a symbol of resting for all eternity under the glory and power of God. And the prayer that they offer to God is for the avenging of their blood, which seems a bit selfish. But actually what they're asking for is the vindication of truth and holiness and not revenge for their early deaths. The fact that they address God as sovereign Lord, holy and true, is a clear indication of that priority. They know that truth and holiness will only be truly vindicated when Christ returns again. So theirs is a call for the second coming, when God will be finally glorified throughout the whole of creation and they're given we read in verse 11 a white robe and told to wait a little longer and the significance of the white robe is given in revelation 7 verse 14 they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb and they're told to wait a little longer of course because the return of christ is getting closer and closer as each seal is opened and so we reach the sixth seal and the opening of that gives an awesome image in verses 12 to 14 There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red and the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. So the opening of the sixth seal brings about this cataclysmic impact on creation. But we need to be clear that this is not the second coming of Christ. This is what precedes the second coming. The seventh seal is yet to be opened. So what are the six seals of Revelation 6? They describe the nature of the world between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus and how God uses world events for judgment. There are wars, civil disorder, famine, pestilence, martyrdom, chaos in the created order. And given that reality, it's not surprising that we hear in verse 15 of people hiding in caves and among the rocks of the mountains trying to escape the judgment of God on their lives. The kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man. The whole of humanity tries to avoid the judgment of God. So that's the text of Revelation 6. But before we end, I just want to make two really important points. Firstly, when we read these judgments, we need to remember they are judgments on the world and not judgments related to specific individuals. So when we see tsunamis or civil wars or pandemics or earthquakes in the world, That is not God judging the people affected for any sins they may have committed. God doesn't send war or famine or plague to punish people. They are a result of the fallen nature of this world and by definition contain within them a judgment on fallenness. And second, the seals aren't opened in chronological order. There are some Christians who try to plot the history of the world through the opening of the seals to work out when the second coming will happen. That's a mistake. Revelation 6 shows us what is happening on earth from the perspective of heaven. And heaven, of course, sits outside of time. So we can't try to attach any chronological order to the seven seals. They are happening at one and the same time. And we need to read them as only signs of the age. As Christians, we see the way the world is and we pray with compassion for those affected by its fallen state. And we do what we can to respond out of kingdom values to make the 
the world a better place and to prepare people for the second coming of Jesus. I hope you found this podcast useful. If you're watching on YouTube, please do click the like button, share and subscribe. And of course, leave your comments below. See you soon. Bye.